Many farmers choose to build sustainable and resilient businesses by growing their acreage and improving their economies of scale. But others choose to go a different route to try to capture as much value as possible from everything they grow. Certainly, uh, if we didn't have, for example, a bakery and a winery and a corn maze and hay rides in the year 2012, we'd have been in real trouble. Alan Robinette is a fifth generation fruit grower near Grand Rapids, Michigan. The Robinette's family farm has continued to thrive over generations by choosing to become retailers while others remain focused on wholesale. It also happens to be Alan's favorite part of farming. As cheesy as it sounds, interacting with customers. I'm really a people person. Being able to uh, sell directly to my customers has really been my favorite part of it. Through listening to their customers and innovating over decades, the Robinettes have built a family business that not only offers delicious food, but experiences that their customers just can't find anywhere else. I think that's our greatest strength at Robinettes is something to do rather than just something to buy. That experience or that memory that you make while you're on the farm is, is far more powerful than just, oh yeah, I, I went over and bought apples. You can buy apples anywhere. We're talking agritourism and becoming a retail farm on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow Agner. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. And before we dive into this fun episode, I want to take just a moment to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor for this quarter, which is Acres. Name a place, a single source where you can find land for sale, comparable sales, and easy-to-use maps. Can't do it? Well, that is where Acres comes in. This land analysis and mapping platform brings together the data you need to make confident decisions about buying, selling, or investing in a piece of land. That includes manually vetted comparable sales, soil data, crop history, elevation, flood insights, and more. There's no paywall. In fact, you can create a free account today at acres.co and access 10 plus layers of data along with land listings, tools for saving and customizing maps, and PDF report generation. If you're in the land business and need more than just the basics, check out their premium and enterprise plans for features that support efficient due diligence, portfolio management, and fast valuations. It's all part of Acres' mission to make the land marketplace transparent and easy to access for anyone. Check out a parcel anywhere in the U.S. right now for free at acres.co. That's acres.co. And if you stay tuned to the end of today's episode, you'll hear how realtor, land investor, and entrepreneur Jake Hofer is using Acres for his various real estate ventures. Thank you so much to Acres for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Alan Robinette. Alan is a fifth-generation fruit grower and orchard manager at Robinette's Apple House and Winery in Grand Rapids, Michigan. His family grows primarily peaches, apples, and sweet cherries and sell everything retail. We get into all sorts of really interesting value-added ag concepts here, including UPIC, of course, farm retail, operating a bakery, winery, and a cider mill, uh, corn mazes, hay rides, gift boxes, and a whole lot more. This is a really fun one for me. Uh, I grew up in direct-to-consumer agriculture and still have dreams of someday owning an enterprise that's sort of part of that side of the industry. 
perhaps someday. But uh, I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. I think there's some some real gems in here about uh, how to add value at the farm level. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here, though, where Alan's describing what initially led his family down this path of focusing on local retail, direct-to-consumer products and experiences. So in addition to having a, a little roadside stand that we'd always had that, but back in the sixties going into the seventies, my grandfather saw that we just didn't have a big enough farm to survive as a wholesale farm. So we've got really 35 acres we can grow on and that's just not big enough to survive. So he looked at what are other farms doing around the country to try and survive and make an income with what they have. And he saw that they were adding cider mills, they were adding a farm market, and they were adding things to to really uh, sell directly to the customer rather than rely on the price you're getting from a wholesaler. So really, that was the big change. We've added a cider mill, bakery, more recent years, we've added a winery, agritourism attractions such as corn mazes and bounce pillows, and we attract you pick apples and you pick cherries. So really, anything we can to bring the customer right to us. And and how has that demand sort of evolved over time? You know, do customers today want something that's drastically different than customers did, you know, uh, when I would assume your father or, or your parents had it before you? Yes, I, I'd say a huge difference is, and especially with everything's so virtual these days, everything's in front of a computer screen. Uh, people want to get out and be on the farm. And with such a large suburban population nearby, we've been able to provide that so close to them. They don't have to drive two hours to to be on a farm or to pick apples on a farm. So I've really seen a change in the demand, uh, especially with, with you pick fruit. We'd always had a lot of you pick cherries over the years. That's been the main way we sell our cherry crop is with you pick with apples, traditionally, we'd always sold our, our apples right on the shelves. And so if you want apples, you come and buy them and then you, you bring them home. Well, in the last 10 years, I've seen a, a huge growing demand for you pick apples. And I, I suspect it has something to do with wanting to know where their fruit comes from. They can see right there, there's the tree it comes from. And so they, they pick it, they bring it home, they bake with it, they eat it fresh. And that's something I've seen grow tremendously in the past 10 years. That's really cool. And, and what you're thinking... You know, this coming year we're in 2023 now, a lot of the COVID protocols are over, right? So I, I shouldn't, I won't say COVID is over, but a lot of the protocols associated with COVID are over. Do you think that will come back down to normal or did these people get a taste for the first time because of COVID and, then, and you expect them to come back? The trend I'm seeing is people are, at least in these past uh, two years, 2021, we were still dealing with a lot of restrictions in Michigan, but 2022 by fall, those were largely gone. Now, granted, our weather was excellent last year, so I'm sure that played a huge factor in it, but we had probably more people than ever show up. And we had, uh, I would say, record numbers of uh, visitors to the farm. And of course, our population in Grand Rapids is growing as well. It's one of the, as of a few years ago, it was one of the fastest growing cities in the country. So I'm sure that plays a part too. Right. Well, and and how do you how do people hear about you? You know, how are you getting the word out in terms of marketing for this? Well, uh, Facebook, Instagram has been huge for us. That's the same with everyone, but we still have uh, billboards. We've seen tremendous success from billboards around our local area. Uh, we have, I don't remember how many billboards our ad agency puts out for us now, but 
our main message is that we're open year-round. So that's what we're really trying to sell rather than any specific one product is to put on billboards open year-round. We have apples for sale through May, you know, in our cold storage. So we have lots to offer and that's that's really been our, our main selling point. But to really answer that question, I was kind of getting away from there. Online has been excellent, but we don't do radio ads anymore. We've We've not seen as big of a return for that. We used to do TV uh, for a brief time in the 90s, but uh, mostly online and, and billboard presence now. Great. And, you know, you, you said you've got about 35 acres you can grow on, but you've got a lot going here with the cider mill, the bakery, the winery, the U-Pick, et cetera, and all the agritourism stuff. How many people does this support full-time? How many full-time employees, including the owners? So there's myself, my mom and dad, my two uncles, and I've got one aunt that manages our bakery. So we've got a lot of family members that are working full-time on the farm. In addition to that, we've got probably 10 full-time employees year-round. And as we get into the summer, we'll start staffing up. You know, we get more people coming out. Uh, We have a lot of seasonal employees. So getting into the fall season, we have, I think we had close to 120 employees this past year. And that's probably more than we'd we'd had. I, I believe that was last year. And so a lot of that's on the bakery and the winery side. We do have some agricultural help from some local guys. A lot of it's high school and college age people. We're very lucky that we're a small farm, so we don't need to rely on programs like H2A or guest worker programs to be able to get by. And UPIC has really eased that that stress of, can we get all the fruit picked? Uh, We've been able to open UPIC up and say, come on, pick the fruit, and then it gets picked. Yeah. And and with that UPIC, was that something that you had to do in stages where you could eventually sell everything you pick, uh, you know, and you had to harvest some yourself? And when did you get to the point where it could be 100% you pick? Uh, well, we're not fully 100% you pick, but we've got a lot planned for you pick. And I'm planning probably, I want to say 1,200 more trees this year or somewhere around there. I'll have to redo my math, but I'm planning a lot more trees for you pick. And really, uh, Back in 2011, that was the first time we'd ever done U-Pick for apples. I set out with a folding table, and I had some bags to sell, and I had maybe 10 customers that day, and I, I was selling Red Delicious, because I said, hey, we don't have time to pick these. Let's try and sell bags to people so they can pick them themselves. And then the next year, I had people come back saying, hey, I was able to pick apples last year. I'd like to do that again. I've seen a big shift in what people want to pick. Obviously, not a lot of people were willing to pick Red Delicious, and those trees I'd already replaced with something else by now, but I've seen a big shift in the demand for certain varieties. So I have some varieties that I I think are great apples. They're very old varieties like Golden Delicious that people don't really seem to want. They're a very tasty apple. They're beautiful golden color, and there they sit. So I end up picking those myself, and so I'm really trying to focus in on what, what are the new varieties or new exciting ones that people are, are willing to come out and try rather than uh, just, here's an apple, come and pick it. Yeah, and what have you found on that? Is it is it all Honeycrisp these days, or what is it? So Honeycrisp, we harvest uh, pretty early in Michigan. That one's probably uh, oh, September 10 or so, and that's really before a lot of the crowds come in. And uh, truth be told, on my farm, we put so much labor and money into Honeycrisp. They're, they're very brittle. They're very difficult to work with. So I don't offer Honeycrisp for you pick. Other farms do, but it's just a, a big investment that I'm not willing to, to turn people loose in yet because the trees are, are very, very touchy, and uh, I'm particular about how they're handled. So uh, 
that's the number one question I get with you pick is I want to pick Honeycrisp. Where can I do that? But I, I have a lot of new and interesting varieties that uh, I'm able to turn people towards. Uh, one that I don't have a lot of yet, and it surprised me greatly, was one called Snow Sweet. And I found it, it's it's really even just beyond the flavor because people are welcome to eat while they pick. But, you know, catchy names are, are big. So Snow Sweet, it's, uh, it's a good tasting apple, but so is Golden Delicious. But Snow Sweet is brand new, and that one's cleaned out in a day. And I'll have uh, Golden Delicious right next to it still sitting there a week later. So I've found uh, interesting new varieties are, are really what uh, catches people's eye. It, at least it seems that way. So I'm planting new varieties or, or interesting varieties. Like, for example, uh, Crimson Crisp is, is a relatively new one. And that one's a very dark, beautiful red. And it's a very crunchy apple and very sweet. But it's got a good name. So I've ordered some trees. I'll see if they get here this spring. Uh, Ludacrisp. I don't know if you've heard of that one. But that one's a, a brand new variety out of Ohio. Yeah, that one, we've sold some on the shelves already. I've only got uh, probably 100 trees right now, and they sell in an instant. Not only is it a great name, but it's got an interesting flavor, too. That one was developed in Ohio, and it, it tastes like juicy fruit gum. So it's uh, stuff like that, I think, is the future of you pick apples. It's stuff that you can't commonly find on the grocery store shelves? Absolutely. That's... Uh, I think one of the great advantages we have as a small farm that's entirely retail is I can experiment with brand new varieties that are interesting. I, I can experiment with, say, 100 trees here and 100 trees there, where if I was a wholesale farm, you know, with 10 times the, the amount of land, I'm going to plant Gala, I'm going to plant Macintosh, stuff that I know that I can sell to grocery stores that I know they're going to want. Now, if, if you've got uh, a new variety such as, um, oh, we've got one called Smitten. And that one hasn't really sold all that well in grocery stores, to my knowledge. I, I guess I'm not too plugged into that because I'm not a wholesaler. But that's one I have probably 200 trees of. And it's just something to try. And it's something different and something I can offer where at a grocery store, they're, they're not going to want to maybe take a risk on some of these new varieties or some of these ones that, that uh, aren't proven or that they know that people want. Right. And I imagine some varieties are going to, be exceptional if picked fresh and eaten then, but maybe not a month or two down the road. They just don't have the shelf life that others do, which are probably, you know, right in your wheelhouse, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. We've got our first variety that we harvest on our farm is called Lodi, and that's similar to a yellow transparent if you've had it. It's in Michigan, it harvests about July 17. So it's very early, but we want, especially being a retail business, we want to be able to have fruit to sell for as much of the year as possible. So we're always looking for something to to grow and fill in that spot where you might not be able to, to get fresh fruit or expect to get fresh fruit. So we start harvesting apples in mid-July, and we're picking them almost to the 1st of November. Uh, in addition to that, we, we grow apples for hard cider as well. Those are some heirloom varieties that most people don't even know the name of, such as uh, Somerset Red Streak, Harry Masters Jersey and Chiseled Jersey, all these these very old varieties that we blend in for hard cider. And so with those, I, I think we're over 40 varieties. Wow. Okay. So I'm surprised uh, we've gone this long without me asking a bunch of cider questions because I am a cider nerd. I planted actually a Chiseled Jersey uh, last year at my, at my parents' place, among a, a few other varieties. Tell me about the cider business. So you mentioned the cider mill that, that you've had way back when. Was that for kind of your traditional non-alcoholic uh, apple cider, or traditional in the, in the U.S. sense, I suppose? Or has it always been kind of a hard cider thing? And, and I want to hear all about that venture. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that began as a way to just have a value-added product to sell. That started as fresh, non-alcoholic cider. And we added the cider mill. And since then, we've been able to, any bruised apples, any cut apples, they go right into cider. So we don't sell seconds. We don't sell deer apples. If it's bruised and it's been sorted, it goes into cider. So that's one way we're really able to use a lot of the product that uh, we already grow that some bigger growers might get a suboptimal price sending it off for processing. Since we have our own cider mill, we can process it right there and, and recoup a lot of that cost. Now, over the years, we, we've sold fresh cider since 1971 or 1972, and it wasn't until 2006 where we added our winery and started selling hard cider. So that was, that's been my uncle's endeavor primarily. I mean, I've helped with it, but that's really his passion and what he's what he specialized in. So our hard cider business started in 2006, and it's grown steadily ever since. We're not at the point where we can distribute, but being a retail farm, that's kind of our charm as well. So we've got the capacity to grow into the cider business more, but as it is right now with how much we're producing for fresh cider, we'd probably need to either build another mill or start getting juice from other growers if we wanted to get huge with it. So right now, all of our cider is sold right on site. And that's really been the charm of what we offer is it's made right here and sold right here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned you're not being able to distribute cider yet. Do you distribute other items or is pretty much everything sold right there on the farm? Everything right on the farm. Uh, so to the extent of selling offsite, I've, I've done farmer's markets before, or I've it's always been direct involvement from people on the farm rather than uh, wholesaling. So I, I shouldn't say technically that I sell everything right on the farm. Sometimes I will go to farmer's markets and sell items there, but uh, it is still all our product selling locally. And how do you manage that from like a supply and demand standpoint? That seems really difficult because I know how variable some of these crops can be, you know, especially like a, a fruit tree crop. There, there's a lot of things that that can go perfectly or not perfectly. And it might, you know, really impact your business being as though you have to line that up with the amount of people who want to show up to the farm, too. How do you manage that logistically? So one of the biggest strengths I think we have is uh, really diversifying our what we grow. So apples are our main crop, but we also sell sweet cherries. We sell peaches and peaches were the original crop grown on our farm because we've got good soil for it, but that's really not our main crop anymore. We sell apricots, we've got plums, we've got pears and just a little bit of everything just to, to have uh, something and, and try and sell as much as we can and diversify as much as we can. Sweet cherries in our climate are kind of a roll of the dice on, on certain years. You know, if you've got an early spring, that usually spells pretty bad news for a cherry crop, you know, sweet cherry crop anyway. And so cherries, we lose more than we lose apples, but it does happen. There's no crop insurance that we have for sweet cherries. Crop insurance for apples is pretty new. That started really after 2012. That was where the whole state of Michigan lost all its fruit overnight. That year we had 81 degree temperatures in March. I think that St. Patty's Day, it was 80 degrees. And so... We had a, a freakishly hot spring that year, and then it, it rubber banded right back into freezing temps. So we were in full bloom, and then we went down to well, 15 degrees, I think, or somewhere down there, and, it, and we lost pretty much everything. You know, that's, that's the worry of, you know, we always, especially in the apple industry in, in Michigan, we, we always refer to 2012 as that year. So crop insurance has been more prevalent in apples since then. That's the worry is that we'll have another event like that 
in addition to that, we have, uh, I don't know if you've seen Frost fans. For the listeners who don't understand, it's a, it looks like big helicopter blades uh, mounted on its side, and it, it turns around a post. So uh, the idea behind those is that on a night where you have a temperature inversion and you're losing hot air as it rises, um, you can try and pull that air back down and try and save yourself a degree or two. It doesn't make too big a difference, but it might make it might be the difference between losing half a crop and a full crop. So there's there's options and there's uh, between offering different types of fruit and certainly uh, if if we didn't have, for example, a bakery and a winery and a corn maze and hay rides in the year 2012, we'd have been in real trouble. Hmm. I am curious about you mentioned you know being open year round and trying to make sure everybody knows that is that basically for kind of cider and donuts or what uh, what would one get if they came here here we're talking in February if they came in February to the farm to uh, to buy stuff that's uh, that's a big part of it so I mean we have a joke that we tell that we're donut farmers because that's one of our primary products but we've got our winery open year round and our our bakery open year round we're we're still making cider fresh until uh we'll probably run out in may we'll run out of apples in may but come november we when we feel we have the best blend for fresh cider we freeze a lot of it so we can sell it throughout the summer so our our goal is to offer that as much of the year as possible usually we'll run out right about in time to start pressing fresh in august or or early september yeah, so right now there's we're selling a lot of donuts, we're selling a lot of wine. Um, we try and have as many events as possible. Uh, we've got a Valentine's event coming up, uh, you know, a wine and chocolate event. So that's that's really the the big deal for us is trying to get people to come right to the farm, and remind remind our customers that we're still there. So yeah, we'll start uh, harvesting cherries in early July, right right around the fourth of July. That's when we start. You pick for your sweet cherries. And then we move into peaches and apples. And then after our busy season, quote unquote, I mean, we as farmers are always busy, but after Halloween is right when we slow down, but that's when we start into our uh, gift box operation. So we ship gift boxes all over the country, except for Arizona. They don't allow us to ship apples into Arizona. And we're still shipping gift boxes right now. We've got apples to ship, but that's that's a big part of our business too. Leading into the Christmas season, we we offer apple gift boxes and and other food items shipped all over the country. Very cool. And the uh, the gift boxes. So are those just apples, or or are there other things in there? So our most popular one is twelve apples on the bottom layer, and on the top layer, you've got goodies such as fudge. Uh, cinnamon roasted nuts. We've got, uh, you know, in a lot of these products we make ourselves. So we make our own caramel corn. We, we make our own fudge. We make our own nuts, and really offering a lot of uh, a lot of items such as that to uh, to offer to the consumer. But we do sell apple gift boxes that are just apples. But um, our most popular ones have some other goodies as well. I think that's awesome. Is this just all just kind of trial and error with your family over the years, or kind of where do you learn to do all this stuff? A lot of it's been trial and error. So that was something, oh, I, I'd have to ask my dad when we started shipping apples, but that's something that predates me. And that was something we offered originally through the Postal Service. We still have the boxes uh, to ship one single apple. And because postage was so cheap back then, you could do that. And that was just, you know, just a fun gift. And from there it grew. We'd, we'd have, uh, back then it was, you know, apples wrapped in tissue paper and packed into boxes. Now we have uh, a local company, uh, Grand Rapids Foam Technologies. They're able to custom make foam cutouts that hold apples for us. So we've we've got uh, a gift box, the shipping boxes we've designed ourselves to be able to hold 
12 apples, 24 apples, or 48 apples, or some kind of combination of goodies with those apples. And so over time, it's kind of been changing, and we ship through FedEx now. It used to be UPS, but FedEx has been great to work with for us and in terms of getting fruit there on time. They, they've done a wonderful job there. So how we've shipped it, what we ship it in has changed over time, but it's really been evolving ever since we started. That's really cool. What about this do you like the most? You mentioned like your uncle's the cider guy. He loves the cider. You know, what's what's your favorite aspect of this? I'd say probably as cheesy as it sounds, interacting with customers. I'm I'm really a people person and it's being able to uh, sell directly to my customers has really been my favorite part of it especially in the fall when we've got all these families coming and you know they're looking for a place to have a good time and being able to provide that really has been one of my favorite parts of it i I mean i can see when we have a family go through the corn maze and come out and i can tell that they've had a good time that's that's a huge thing and it, it really validates what i'm doing so it it shows you know this is still something that people love still a place that people like to come to and so yeah it sounds cliche, but uh, interacting with customers and really uh, being around people has been my favorite part of it. What have you noticed about your customer base? I mean, is it families trying to have kind of a family experience on a weekend outdoors, or are there kind of certain trends or demographics that you've just picked up on through your customer base that uh, you've keyed in on? I'd say the biggest one, especially in the fall, is generational traditions of there's people I saw when I was, you know, 10 years old, I'm 30 now. And so I, I can see people, you know, they, they came with their parents and now they're coming with their own children. And so that's something I, I've seen that's that's been huge for us is, you know, being a part of this tradition for West Michigan families. And I do see uh, we're one of two farms remaining in our township. So there's been a lot of development around us. There's a lot of apartments that have gone in right across the street. I don't even know how many units, but we're getting surrounded by people. And so I'm seeing new customers all the time. And for most farmers, that's a problem. But for us, that that means there's more customers, uh, more people to come and visit the farm. So I see it as an opportunity rather than a problem. But um, I'm set up for for customers. But I I think that's uh, something that looking to the future is a way to use all these these high-density housing developments that come, you know, give them something to, to come and see. You probably have a lot of friends who who farm more in conventional business models, you know, wholesale. If one of them were to come to you and say, like, all right, what do I need to know if I want to make this leap to adding a retail element? You know, what are the big differences between farming for wholesale and farming for retail? What what would you want to make sure you prepared them for? Uh, well, I, I'd say one of the big ones is uh, knowing what's possible, because, for example, uh, I might have someone who lives in the middle of Michigan who says, hey, I want I want to add a winery. Well, if they don't have the traffic coming through, that may not be feasible. So really, sometimes it's an honest look at how many people are capable of coming to the farm. Or if you're, I mean, we're very lucky. We're in just outside of main metropolitan area um, in an area that's growing like crazy. So it, that's the biggest thing is how many people can you possibly have come to the farm? Another is just uh, knowing food regulations. Like for example, I'd recommend anyone who has a farm market or is thinking of adding a farm market is add items like donuts or caramel apples, food to be able to sell. You know, all that extra stuff is is a potential source of revenue, but you have to know the all the food safety issues. You have to be up on that. And it's something you have to be honest with yourself of, do I want to deal with that? Now, for example, our cider mill is, 
you know, it's inspected regularly and that's something that we have to be prepared for. You know, you can't just uh, start squeezing apples and call it cider. You, you have to be able to interface with state agencies in a way that you might not have had to before. So, I mean, that, that's all pretty basic stuff, but it, that's kind of, I'd say the ground level for that. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's let's talk about the future. You know, where would you like to see the business go in the future? Is it more a matter of just kind of focusing in on what you already have? Are there new ideas that you'd like to experiment with? You know, as you look forward, uh, what excites you about uh, where things can go from here? Well, I'd say the first and foremost thing I, I kind of already touched on a little bit is is adding more U-pick varieties, adding more things for people to do while they come to the farm, because I think that's our greatest strength at Robinettes is uh, something to do rather than just something to buy. So it, that experience or that memory that you make while you're on the farm is, is far more powerful than just, oh yeah, I, I went over and bought apples. You can buy apples anywhere. And especially any time of year now, you can get fruit. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, one thing I've just started asking people at the end of my interviews is, um, is there anyone that you look to when you're wondering, like, what will agriculture look like in the future? Anyone that comes to mind of like that you you really trust their perspective on the future of agriculture. It's the name of the show, and I'm always looking for new perspectives and new voices to tap into. But who do you look to for questions about where agriculture is headed? Well, when it comes to agritourism stuff, we're part of a network of agritourism farms that's called the the maize group. That's M-A-I-Z-E. And so they cut our corn maize for us. They help design it and cut it for us every year. And that's run by Brett Herbst out of Utah. And so he has grown an insanely successful business in not only agritourism, but creating corn mazes for other businesses. So that group of people, they're on the cutting edge of of what's happening in agritourism, what's successful, what's not successful. That's kind of who I look to for the agritourism side of it. For production agriculture, I, I still look at Michigan State University Extension. I'm always trying to learn more on how to be a better farmer and how to be more productive and more efficient with our land use and how we can grow better apples in a small space. I mean, that's the future of agriculture is doing more with less. You know, there's less farmland over time and we got to do a better job to feed the world with what we have. All right. Well, thank you very much to Alan Robinette for being on the show. If you'd like to learn more about all of the various activities they've got going on, make sure you go check out their website, which is just robinette.com. I'll leave it for you there in the show notes as well. Uh, And make sure you drop by if you're ever in the Grand Rapids area. They are open year-round, and I think sometimes seven days a week, uh, sometimes maybe fewer. So check out the hours, but uh, stop by if you're in Grand Rapids. And if you do, make sure you tag me on social media with a picture. I think that would be cool. Uh, Next, we move from one entrepreneur to another. Here to give some insight on how he's using the Acres platform in his work as a real estate broker and investor is Jake Hofer. Jake has a really cool ag background. He actually grew up on a deer farm, which I didn't know much about. I'm not much of a big game hunter myself, Uh, but when he was in college, he actually started a business selling deer urine to hunters. Eventually, though, he caught the real estate bug. And as he's grown his businesses there, he's relied on Acres to help both him and his clients. 
I'm also a land buyer, so uh, the due diligence process is fantastic. And then if uh, I'm getting ready to list a farm to go in and really become an expert in that area and look at all the different sales comps that are on the interface, go look at other sales comps. And, you know, they usually are in legal description, which isn't the easiest thing to find on other platforms. But you go there, you look at the section, you look at the, the township and boom, you can find it right away and get all the information. So the time for due diligence went down drastically by using it. And also the in-depth data was really powerful too. So for instance, even the listing, let's say there was a farmer on there that was probably underpaying for cash rent. Boom. You can look to see what the county cash rent is. And, and that's a conversation for maybe a potential buyer and say, Hey, there's a way to force a little bit of appreciation, increase the cash flow. You know, not all farmers created equal. I understand that, but let's get it closer to the county average because the soil is closer to the county average. As someone who, probably like you, is ambitious and entrepreneurial, Jake's an early adopter of new technology that gives him an edge in business. He said Acres has unequivocally helped him in his farmland dealings, and he's finding use for it in recreational land as well. That's the exciting thing about the Acres platform is just how in-depth it is and all the tools that are there in just one simple location. And I find even from the recreational side of point. So like I do sell quite a bit of whitetail land as well. And so one of the biggest things is uh, putting in food plots. And so one of my favorite tools is to go in and see, obviously what is the recorded FSA acreage, but what about that spot that's a flat and open and let's go see what the soil is and if it can support row crops. And my, it might only be three, four acres, but that's really all that client needs. And we can say, hey, this is good soil. You're gonna get a good crop on it. You're gonna use small equipment but it's going to accomplish your goal. Or maybe it's the opposite where um, I looked at a farm that uh, was an old strip mine. And so you would think all the soils around it were really great. It was flat and open, but the soil was really bad because they stripped all the topsoil. And so I was able to recognize that through that tool. And to me, knowledge and information is extremely powerful for you to make an educated decision and to get all of that in a fast fashion is something that I just, I get really excited about. I mean, time is, time is so valuable, especially uh, on a sensitive deal where you might have to make a decision somewhat quickly and you can make concise decisions. In addition to his work as a broker, investor, and business owner, Jake hosts a popular podcast called The Land Podcast for people looking to educate themselves about land ownership and land investing. Through that show, he regularly gets to interact with a lot of people who are newer to land ownership, and he sees Acres as an asset to anyone, including those folks who want to quickly get up to speed. We do talk about some farm ground as well, and I think what's interesting is most of these buyers are looking for some level of return to help service the debt more than likely. And so most of them do not have an extensive farming background. So to use these different tools and to be able to look at the county cash rent, it's just that information being very transparent is very powerful for those people. Um, and so in essence, typically it's some sort of mix. It's more mixed use. It's not 100% tillable. It's not 100% timber. And so to kind of be able to look at both of those items is really powerful. And then beyond that, uh, with the historical imagery, I love that tool. That is by far my favorite. And so you can go look and see what the timber looked like 10 years ago and in two year intervals and see, was there a cut? Did they put in trails? and really get the history of the farm because not all sellers know the history of the farm. Maybe they're absentee landowners and they haven't been to it in 15, 20 years. And so you can kind of piece together a story just with a few clicks. Overall, Jake said he uses acres as a way to conduct his business better. And also he likes that it gives transparency to a market that has really been anything but in the past. 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately to be able to to go and find comps and become an expert, and, and I say expert somewhat loosely, but to be pretty educated on an area that maybe, you know, is outside of your two hour radius and you can continue to keep expanding your area of expertise and then try to identify deals, you know, just a little bit further, just a little bit further as you continue to learn areas. To me, that's really important because some areas in the country, there's not a lot of transactions. It's uh, land, a lot of private sales and a lot doesn't go to public. And then you go to other areas and land changes hands about every three to four years. And so maybe you're not in that area where land changes, you know, every three to four years. And that's usually an area to where it's really exciting for investors because you can go in and force appreciation and there's going to be a buyer there for you when you're done. And so just the general information to go in and make, you know, data-driven decisions in a very fast and effective way, I think is an advantage that hasn't been there in the past. And I think I talked to a bunch of different people on the land podcast of how, how easy it was in the 80s or 90s in terms of to be able to identify deals because of less competition. I think that's something that continues to compound and get harder. And so people right now are thinking it's hard, but once everything becomes more transparent, which is what all these industries are leaning towards, it's going to get even more challenging. So to be able to be on the forefront of that and ride that appreciation to me is a huge opportunity that won't be here forever. Well, thanks again to Jake Hofer for sharing his experiences. Uh, I'll go ahead and link to his podcast and to his business in the show notes. So if you're uh, interested in that, you can go follow up. And really, if you're intrigued by any of his comments, you'll want to head over to acres.co to try this tool out for yourself for free. And thanks again to Acres for sponsoring this quarter of the Future of Agriculture podcast. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.